The Book Club is brought to you in association with Charles Stanley Community, providing our clients, colleagues and friends with practical support and conversation. Find out more at Charles Stanley Community. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guests are going to be talking about the 75th anniversary this month of Brideshead Revisited, Evelyn War's great novel, so influential that even when I was an undergraduate it was inspiring any number of fey public schoolboys to turn up with teddy bears. My guests are Philip Hensher, our chief critic, and Alexander War, who's Evelyn War's grandson and the general editor of the 43-volume work in progress of the Oxford edition of Evelyn War's works. Welcome both. To start with, can I just ask, Brideshead's has a huge cultural reach, but where does it stand in War's canon? Is it his masterpiece? Is it the most important of his books? Well, war aficionados can squabble about that as much as they like. The thing about war is he's, he has a, an interesting canon. On the one hand, it is all bound in. So if you read the books in the order they were written, you'll find different themes emerge and change and alter and are chucked out and new ones added. So the whole thing is, in one sense, a single canon. In another sense, you can divide it up into three parts. The, the early comedies, which some people prefer and think of the funniest things like Decline and Fall, Scoop, Black Mischief, etc. Then Brideshead, which sort of stands alone, and then the later, people say, slightly more serious books. Brideshead stands alone in a sense that it was a culmination for him. He described it as his magnum opus when he was writing it, but then he didn't really continue in that vein. And so it, it is a standalone work, and you can decide it's a pinnacle, or as some of his greatest friends at the time thought, it was a bit of bathos and he'd gone in the wrong direction. I think the general consensus now is, is that it is a very great novel, but he is a very great writer, so you can almost pick any out from anywhere along that line. You can champion any one of those novels and say this is the best one if you want. Remarkably consistent writer. Philip, do you share that view? It's an interesting case. It's actually the dead centre of his work as a novelist. There are six novels before, there are six novels after. It's quite different in style, in some ways, to the rest of his work. And it's much more different in the first version of two. He toned it down a little bit in a 1959 revision, saying that he found some of its excesses distasteful on a full stomach. But the style of kind of Baroque, of extended Homeric metaphor, of extravagance it crops up in the rest of his work but not to such a degree the other thing that is very interesting about the novel is that it's generally been received in the 75 years since publication in a way that isn't really in accord with what Moore said his intention was on the dust jacket. He said that it was a study of the workings of divine grace in a pagan world. That's not really the way that readers have, on the whole, taken it. And people have spectacularly misread it by Moore's intentions from the beginning. A Hollywood studio, which considered making a movie of it immediately after the war, turned it down in the end because they said they couldn't reconcile it with a Christian view of marriage, which is about as dramatic a, uh, a disjunction from War's uh, intention as you can possibly imagine. So it does stand alone. It's quite unusual in War's work in that the main characters in it don't crop up in any other novels. Almost all his other favourite characters 
have a minor walk-on parts in subsequent novels. This one stands alone. He never quite tried to do it again, though, of course, you can find glimpses of the Brideshead world both before and afterwards. You've both said that it sort of, in some sense, stands alone. It's stylistically slightly different. It's a hinge in his career. Why was it different? Is it because it was more personal? I mean, I'm thinking there's that, you know, it's been very much poured over that epigraph, you know, I am not I, thou are not he or she, they are not they. That sort of disclaimer, in a sense, that it's personal. Is it actually much more personal to him than some of the other stuff? I think you have to bear in mind when it was written. It was started in 1944. He had tried very hard to get involved in the Second World War and been constantly rebuffed on the grounds that he was a bit too old. He did eventually get into the army and had quite a torrid time of it, it has to be said. And he witnessed people dying in the shock of all that. And he was also getting now into his 40s. And I think everybody's... Humour slightly gets less wild when you get a bit older and when you're faced with the war and the deepening Catholicism. It's quite interesting that he was very Catholic throughout the 30s, but you don't get at all a heavy sense of Catholicism in those early books. Um, When I'd say those early books, I mean the ones from the moment that he converted. And so the question is, what effect did the war have on him? What effect did the death of his father have upon him, which I think was quite a profound one? Those two things, I think, give some sense of a turning point. And the added seriousness that he was now married with children, that the world was in chaos. I think if you put all those things together, you get, if you, for want of a better word, you get an excuse why Brideshead Revisited comes out quite so different from the earlier books. And, of course, he is looking back, as he says himself, to a time before the war when things were happier, drinks were more available, the food was better, the paper with which books were printed was of a finer quality. And he's looking back with a sense of nostalgia and longing on a past idyllic life that he thinks will never return. I think that's all absolutely true. I think that there is, too, the the fact that there are just a couple of things in that had happened to him clarified his thoughts very powerfully. One was the experience of the war. I think the lesson that he took from his war experiences was that he was much braver than other people. He couldn't understand people who weren't brave in the face of fire, it seems to me. The other one is one of the most extraordinary things in the the book and something that's come in for a lot of criticism is Lord Marchmain's um, making the sign of the cross on his deathbed almost unconscious, and people have been expressing incredulity about this. In fact, exactly the same thing happened at the deathbed of his friend Hubert Duggan um, a year or so before, so I think that set him off. The other thing that is worth noting about Brideshead, and which explains quite a lot, I think, as a novelist, about the style and the approach of the book is that even by his standards he wrote it extremely quickly and under a lot of external pressure the army having given him three months leave to write the novel he told them it would take him three months to write in fact it took him four months after a couple of months started trying to cancel his leave and take him back in and some of the most intense scenes in the the book were written while, basically, while he was uh, expecting to get a train back to the battlefield. And there's a certain sort of pouring out of subconscious feelings, which we don't really get in the rest of war. 
there are also, as people have always said, there's magnificent writing in the book, but there are also passages that are clearly written in an absolutely tearing hurry. And he was quite right, I think, not to rewrite the book from beginning to end. But you can understand how in 1959 he looked at some of this and thought, this needs to be gone over a, a little bit. It's all part of the appeal of the book, that slightly embarrassing feeling of reading war for once with a layer of skin and self-consciousness and self-awareness removed. It's almost like in this book he has no shame for once. But that pressure you talk about, the pressure he was under to write it fast, it wasn't publication pressure, was it? I mean, he originally set out to write this book as a sort of private project, is that right? No, no, he, he set out to write the book as a book, as any, any of his other books to be published and to be put out with his works. And he set out in mind with something that was on a grander scale than he had thought of. Right from the beginning, when he's on the first day, he's already starting to call it his manum opus. So he's quite aware that this is something much bigger and much more ambitious than he's ever attempted before. But it is a book to be published. Yes, it was done quite quickly, but he had the most remarkable facility it got harder and harder for him as he got older. But if you look at the manuscript of Decline and Fall, he has these enormous full-scat pages, and I think there's eight or nine or possibly ten pages of tiny writing going on and on before he makes a single correction. He was writing these beautiful letters. I'm currently editing his letters at the moment, and you see long letters written in absolutely perfect, stylish English without a single correction on them. Now, that's not to say that's how the manuscript of Brideshead looks. Once he had written it, he reworked it and he was reworking it at the time. In fact, the first thousand words he says he had to write three times. So he was going at it a bit, but I would just answer to, to, to Philip. Yes, it was written quickly. Yes, there were things that he wanted to change, but that was part of his fastidious nature. But I would still say that him writing quickly is a great league above an awful lot of other people writing quickly, and what was coming out was pretty superior. Yes, I'm not denying that at all. I think it's a, it's a magnificent book, but there are kind of occasional signs of things being kind of done hurrying. He said He says himself... Oh, when he's talking about it, that the dialogue at the end between Ryder and Julia... At the fountain. Um, right as they're saying goodbye to each other, isn't very good. And he just posts it off, and it's true. It's not one of the strongest parts of the book. I don't want to go on about the problems in the book, but there are a couple of moments where he doesn't seem particularly engaged in this particular corner. And it's almost as if... I mean, a lot of novelists, when they're working, will write something quickly uh, with the intention of going back to it. And there's a page that often holds me up, and it's the page about Julia's year as a debutante. There's really quite a kind of startlingly standard kind of page, just almost like a sketching out about whether she'd do for the royal dukes and, you know, and it's not up to war's standard, really. I'm sure that there are moments where, given slightly different circumstances, given the possibility that he could have brought it out in his own time without that sense of pressure, the sense that he might be killed at any moment, he might be called back to war at any moment, he might have gone back and done it properly. But, you know, the miracle of it 
is that so much of it is so kind of rich and poised and just exquisitely delineated and the whole thing done from beginning to end in four months really it's really up there with Stondahl writing the chart house of palmer in 49 days again i would uh, i would only differ with you on the fountain scene you're absolutely correct that it's unrealistic but he knew that... no 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 i didn't no alexander i'm not talking about the fountain scene now, what Wall was talking about is the conversation at the very end of that chapter. Thus, I came to the broken sentences, which are the last words spoken between Julia and me. And Wall says that he does find that unsatisfactory. The monologue at the, the fountain and Lord Marchmain's monologue, which are the two that have always been set out as sort of unrealistic monologues, I think they're a very key part of the appeal of the book. The conversation at the very end is much more a sort of ordinary novelistic failure, I think. Yes. Just out of interest, on those two scenes, the, the one at the fountain and Lord Marchman's dying soliloquy, he says, these passages were never, of course, intended to report words actually spoken. They belong to a different way of writing from, say, the early scenes between Charles and his father. I would not now introduce them into a novel which elsewhere aims at various similitude, but I have retained them here in something near their original form because, like the Burgundy, misprinted in many editions, and the Moonlight, they were essentially of the mood of writing, also because many readers liked them, though that is not a consideration of first importance. I quite, I quite agree. I quite agree, actually. The, um, I read for the first time this week the uh, 1945 version all the way through, and when we get to the scene at the fountain, it seems to me that actually the more Baroque version in 1945 is actually much more compelling and strange even than the 1959. There's a very much more extended metaphor in what Julia says about her guarding her sin and looking after it like a baby and uh, giving it diamonds as a christening present. It's absolutely extraordinary passage and um, I can understand why he got rid of it, but I'm glad that it's preserved. Yes, there's, there's actually more, even more than that preserved, because, as, as I'm sure you know, Philip, the very, very first printed manifestation of it was a limited edition of 50 copies which he sent out to his friends for their criticism. It was, interestingly, the first time that he ever really sought his friends' criticism and really was interested in what they were saying about any book he had written. And people wrote back, including Father Martin Darcy, saying, I don't like this theologically, and Ronald Knox, and then others of his friends talking about the use of type-ins or whatever. And so he made a lot of corrections from that. Now, in that very early edition, you get, for instance, a 700-word conversation between Charles Ryder and his father, which was completely cut. Actually, it's marvellous and very funny, but I think he felt that the excitement of Ned Ryder scenes was running away with him and, he, and it was taking over the whole form of the book, so he, he deleted it. But, the, yes, there, there are a lot more treasures, if you're a real Brideshead fan, to be discovered, and a lot of those are going to come out, of course, in the Oxford University uh, press edition that we're editing now. May I ask, are the OUP thinking of doing both versions of Brideshead? It seems to me that here's a, a proper case, like their two versions of King Lear, of actually printing the 1945 or the 500 copy edition followed by the 1959 edition. They did seem to me to be not just minor revisions, they seem to be substantially different novels. Yes, well, the policy of the edition 
is to use the English uh, first edition as copy text, but every single change alteration from manuscript to first edition to the pre-publication edition and to the 1959 edition will all be entered into an appendix of variora at the back. But, I mean, it's already running... So you're printing the, uh, the, the 1945 Yes, that'll be the main copy text. Yeah. That'll be very interesting, because in every other case, what we normally read is the 1959 text. That's true. The Penguin hardback edition, which came out quite recently, that uses the 59 text on the basis, I suppose, that that was his last thought. But you, one can argue when they had hind leg <laughs> off a donkey about whether a composer or a writer's first thought or their last thought is, is, is the more important one. And anyway, the general policy on this edition was to use the first edition, English edition, and so therefore to get some sense of how he was responding to his critics. To put Paul Focus a bit some of the themes of the book. You've said, Philip, that you think it's been substantially misread by most of the people who love it. Is it sort of out of kilter with the times and getting more so? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking not only the theology, which obviously is sort of niche for a secular readership, but also its attitudes to aristocracy. I mean, there's, are we supposed to sympathise to some extent with Lord Marchmain when he disinherits Bridie? And in the current term of the time, are people going to go, that's very hard to do? I don't think that people read novels for how closely they uh, they resemble events in their own lives. <laughs> people are perfectly capable of understanding primogeniture if the uh, only thing they're going to be left by their, <laughs> their parents is uh, you know a box of uh, holiday postcards. So I, <laughs> I think uh, you know as somebody who first read Brideshead Revisited when I was 15 and at a comprehensive school in Sheffield and I absolutely adored it. There's no uh, question of, oh, this has got nothing to do with my daily life. I loved primogeniture. I don't think that class as a subject for novelists is ever going to weigh. Class takes different forms, but we can always understand hierarchy, privilege. We could understand people who are more distinguished from us, whether we're talking about society parties in the 1920s or life in a high-security prison. What I think is slightly challenging for contemporary readers is the question of religion. And I think that's mainly because novels can't really talk about the substance of religion. There's no way that you'd write a novel about the Holy Ghost. All you can talk about is the way that individual human beings who are engaged with religion behave in a social way. And that's one of uh, War's best subjects. But I do think that what's slightly disconcerting about War's writing about religion is that the most memorable things about it do seem to regard it, like a lot of his interests, as a set of rules of an extraordinarily complex game that produce some really bizarre outcomes. The example I always think of is um, Guy Crouchback in the, uh, in the, the late trilogy trying to go to bed with his divorced wife. It dawns on her halfway through the scene that he's only trying to go to bed with her because she is the only woman that he is allowed by his church to go to bed with. And similarly, in Brideshead, the, the main use of religion 
is as a plot function of who is allowed to marry who and who can never be allowed to marry and what the consequences of that are. It is ultimately about divine grace and it is about the ways in which we can't really understand the workings of divine grace unless it's working in us. The fascination of the book really is that we as readers, for the most part, are kind of observers, are strange external observers in much the same way that Charles Ryder is for the main body of the book. And when he, towards the end, goes within the world of Catholic belief, he sort of, that part of his mind kind of passes away from us. We don't really have access to it anymore. It's not really surprising that readers have kind of focused on the worldly aspects of it they sort of acknowledged the divine grace thing, which was the most important thing for war, but we don't really feel it on the whole, I would say. Is that a failure of the book? No, not at all. A novel is not a failure because it fails to carry out its author's uh, spoken intentions. <laughs> that would be the end of all the all literary endeavour. Alexander, do you share that view? Yes, no, it's a persuasive argument. I would just like to add, for people possibly listening to this, the point about how funny it is, you know, he did say at the beginning that this book isn't specifically meant to be funny, as, for instance, Decline and Fall was. Last time I read it, which was about four months ago, I was really taken by how funny it is. Endless, endlessly laugh-out-loud moments. And his funniness is not just the acute observation of people behaving a little bit eccentrically, but it's the way that he puts it, the juxtaposition of sentences one next to another that gives an effect of rather startling you or surprising you. Very often when I'm reading an Evelyn War book, I've almost lost interest in the plot, as a matter of fact, and the sheer joy in the way it's being written, and I can be stuck for a day on a single page, just I want to reread that paragraph over and over again because it's scintillating the way he writes it. And actually, we talk about the theme, and you're right, there is that important theme of the action of divine grace upon the individuals. But he also wrote in another occasion that one of his principal concerns in writing the book was to express style in its purest and greatest form. And in many ways, he got away with that. He had to do quite a lot of revisions to get to the point where he was really happy with it. But Style is something that is very, very unique to him, this polished English. And in one way, it's a difficult thing to teach. Were I an English teacher, it's rather hard to say you must read this book um, because it's one of the best written in the English language. What does that exactly mean? But you can only understand it when you read it and you get these sensations of thrill and joy as one sentence flows into another so perfectly. And that, I think, almost moves us into the realm of magic. So now you're getting the idea when I said at the very beginning of this conversation, are we all going a little bit mad uh, drawing the lockdown? Um, but yes, I do talk about magic when it comes to some of those sentences. There's something He's inimitable, and yet you find enormous number of writers. I, I suspect, I'm looking forward to hear what Philip has to say to this, but he may be one of them himself. I've spoken to a lot of writers of a much younger generation than Evelyn Waugh who say they're profoundly influenced by him. But that is not the same as saying that they are imitators, because he is inimitable. On the point of comedy, I do think this is a very interesting point. And personally, I would never trust a novelist who was never funny, who found no place for comedy in their view of the world. 
Bride's Head, it's very striking that the characters that leap to life, that have have real kind of human dimensions, are the ones that have a comic aspect. I, I think Charles Ryder's father is an absolute triumph. He's not a comic stereotype. We've never seen somebody quite like Charles Ryder's father before, but we absolutely believe in him. I think Rex Mottram. I think also Cordelia. Cordelia is wonderful. When seriousness comes in, he doesn't want to give a character that kind of gift of comedy, not to do Anthony Blanche and not to do Celia Ryder, who's a wonderful comic character. When he wants to do Julia, for instance, there's a kind of gap. Uh, And I think that Julia is the one sort of... Well, the one problem with the book as a character. She just isn't really there. Wall was totally capable of doing it, I think. And if you look at, was it his next novel or the one after that? Helena, I think it's the great underrated novel by War. His portrait of St Helena is just brilliant because she's funny, she's holy, she's intensely human in a way that Julia sort of remains just a kind of space for where a beautiful, grand anguished woman ought to be. Really interesting, I think, is the depiction of the main character of Charles Ryder. And of him, he writes, Evelyn Waugh writes, I deliberately chose someone obscure and sterile as the voice of conscience to contrast it with the voice of God speaking to Julia at the fountain. And he writes to Nancy Mitford of Charles Ryder, he is dim, but he is telling the story and it is not his story. So we do have a funny thing there with the main character. We, of course, we're seeing things through his eyes, so he can't intervene too much. But he is, in a sense, a very sterile character. But again, it's a deliberate thing to make him like that. It's the technical point about writing a first-person novel that it's perfectly, it's perfectly OK to have rather a kind of untextured main character telling the story, like in Anthony Powell. We don't need to have a vivid character there. But once we start talking about the characters around in the third person, we can't have a kind of conventional blank because we're trying to observe. You mentioned, actually, the screen adaptation, which has been, I suppose, hugely influential on the way the book has been received and understood. Did that distort the reception of the book or the understanding of the book, do you think? The book was hugely popular when it was first published, particularly in America. It gave it a a new boost of life. We were talking about the problem of the main eye character, the central character, Charles Ryder, and I think that did cause a problem for them because it was very, very faithful to the book, that adaptation. And uh, Charles Ryder does come across as a bit sterile. I remember watching that. I've watched it two or three times now and thinking to poor old Jeremy Irons, who acted it very splendidly, but one thought... Get up, Jeremy, say something, do something, react. I don't get that feeling so much from the book, but when you're filming, and particularly if you're just filming someone's face who's just listening to other people, it can get rather irksome. In many other ways, I thought that adaptation was absolutely splendid and it was pretty well 100% in terms of the words used taken straight from the book. Including the narrative sections, there's a lot of voiceover. In fact, I was looking today and I think it must be the only instance of 
a television dramatisation of a book which is longer than an unabridged audio reading of the book. The unabridged audio reading of the book is nine and a half hours. The ITV dramatisation is 12 hours. It's an enormous, enormous undertaking. The script, I think, was by John Mortimer, and you can understand that he didn't want to lose anything that could possibly go in. I do think that the end result, though everything individually is simply ravishing, the end result is to give it a slightly epic quality, which doesn't seem to me to be quite in the tone of the book. It covers a lot of time. It doesn't waste time at all. It's actually a very brisk book. It's only, what, 300 pages long? Um, 314 pages long in this edition. It doesn't really justify the sort of glacial pace that the dramatisation had. The dramatisation, of course, had an enormous social impact on the the 1980s, particularly uh, if you were turning up to uh, do an English degree at Oxford a year after it came out. <laughs> oh dear, well, that's... Uh... <laughs> well, there's another story about John Mortimer's script because the truth of the matter is that he wrote an absolute rubbish script it was completely unusable, uh, full, <laughs> full of useless ad- ad- admissions from other novels by Evelyn Moore, with people turning up upside down and a lot of rubbish. And the producers had already booked the actors and booked the scenes and had a lot of costs ahead of them, and they simply couldn't use it. And they were absolutely terrified that the War Estate, which in those days was principally run by my father, that they would insist on having John Mortimer. And so they got rid of the whole of John Mortimer's script and the director and the producer sat down and just took it all out of the book straight in an absolute rush and a hurry. Um, and uh, John Mortimer's name was left on it. But if you asked him about it, it was very funny. I, I once shared a platform with him at the um, literary festival at Hay on Wye, talking about Evelyn Moore, and someone said, oh, it's such a marvellous script, Sir John. How did you do it? It's absolutely brilliant. And he said, well, you know, I mean, it's all war. It's just wonderful. He's just such a good writer. He wouldn't quite admit that he didn't write it at all. <laughs> and yes, it was all war. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not convinced that there's ever been another great film of another war novel, and I'm not quite sure why. I thought the one on Handful of Dust was pretty good, actually. I, I don't know if you remember that one. Had Kirsten Scott Thomas in it as the as Brenda. Mm-hmm. I think Evelyn War is quite difficult because the joy of him, as I said before, the real joy is in that prose and in those conversations. It's the way it's written. It, it's so alive on the page. Normally, one thinks pages are dead and visual films are, are more alive. But it's very, very difficult to bring something that is so alive as Evelyn War's prose even more alive. And so, and anyone, of course, it's always a great cliche, says not as good as the book, that goes on and on and on with everybody, but with Evelyn Waugh, that sharp <clears throat> joy that you get from reading his prose, it just doesn't come across when you film it. It does make me think that the, the language of comedy in visual and in, in prose is quite different. To watch about a month ago, I found the um, three-part dramatisation of um, Decline and Fall... Uh, with Jack Whitehall in it, and it was perfectly good. But at the end of it, I, um, my husband said to me, um, I, I don't get it, was that, was that supposed to be funny? 
<laughs> and <laughs> Decline and Fall is, in my view, after Pickwick Papers, the funniest novel in the English language. But somehow showing people kind of breaking rocks in a quarry, it just doesn't work as a joke. It's all in the deadpan tone, really, I think. Which is, as you say, I think practically impossible to translate <clears throat> accurately to the screen. I did think that Decline and Fall was, was fun myself. And I think it served a great purpose, I hope, to drive people back to the book, because that's where it's really at. Speaking of tone, one of the things that people have debated ever since is the question of how explicit the homosexuality of the relationship between Charles and Sebastian is. How do you guys read that? Do you think it's War speaking in code because of his times, or did he deliberately leave it ambiguous, or how do you read it? Clearly not. <laughs> Uh, there are homosexuals in, in the book. He talks quite clearly about Anthony Blanche. He talks uh, quite clearly in terms of Sebastian's relationship with Kurt later on. I think that it's one of those relationships that probably wasn't even quite clear to Charles and Sebastian while it was going on. I think that there was nothing really to be gained by talking about what they actually did together. I would say that it's uh, it's romantic, it's homophile, but, you know, would they have joined the gay sock? No. <laughs> <laughs> good, yeah. I have nothing to add to that. I think it's a very good uh, summation of the whole thing. And I think things are done quite delicately all through the book. I, I'm ashamed to say that I read it for the first time when I was 18, so that was three years later than it took Philip to read it. And I didn't even notice by the end of the book that Charles had so-called converted to the Catholic faith. It's done so slightly and so carefully, you can, you can miss it. So I would say the same, actually, when I first read it about homosexual... I don't like the word innuendo, but, but the, the, the slight homosexual theme that's in it... It's very well done. Anyway, as we know, it's, it's very largely autobiographical. So it, it is talking to a great extent about his own friendships at Oxford and particularly with a young man called Alistair Graham from whom he was inseparable in 1924. And so Alistair Graham takes on some of the aspects of Sebastian in the book. It's interesting that in the manuscript of Bride's Head Revisited, he more than once writes Alistair where he means Sebastian. Yes, I, I don't know what that's about. It may be back to what you were saying, Philip, about the speed at which he wrote it. Or maybe he did intend to call him Alistair at the beginning, but I think he might have got a libel writ if he had done that, because Alistair Graham was certainly still alive, although he was a recluse living in Wales at the time. How profitable do you think it is to, to play the game of Spot the Original with this one? Evelyn War didn't have, in a strange way, an enormous imagination. Well, it's not an imagination. He wouldn't want to write something based on, on, on nothing. He always insisted that life's experience is, is the material that you need to write a book. But he very often took more than one character in order to formulate a character. So I suspect that when he was writing, he was thinking of two people rather deliberately and then merging them. In one case, he writes a whole novel where a man is actually based upon a woman who he knows very well. Um, and we know that in Brideshead Revisited, he actually admits to some of the likenesses between certain people. Harold Acton took rather great offence at the Anthony Blanche, but it was only half Harold Acton and also someone called Brian Howard that had been sort of merged together. Charles Ryder's father is partly 
Evelyn Waugh's father and partly a solicitor called E.S.P. Haynes. So that's the sort of way he was doing it, and he was basically putting all his life's experience into a sort of kaleidoscope and shaking it up and then reproducing the incredible patterns of the kaleidoscope. And it's up to individuals if they want to do that, and I think it's sometimes quite fun to try and pick it all apart and work out which bit is coming from where. But you will find an enormous number of incidents actually happen. They're not just invented in, in his mind. But, you know, ask longer, Vita Bravis. Last year, I discovered for the first time from uh, Hilary Sperling's biography, Anthony Pearl, who Widmore Paul is undoubtedly based on. It's somebody called Dennis, and I've actually forgotten his name already. Now, you know, I happen to know who Brian Howard was, um, but I only know him because uh, Anthony Blanche was based on him. You know, in 100 years, in 200 years' time, Anthony Blanche will still be as alive as he is now on the page. Who knows or cares who Brian Howard was? Well, I agree with that. But, I mean, you're, you're a novelist, Philip. You can explain your technique in doing this. I would imagine, I've never written a novel, but simply by basing your characters on real people, regardless of whether they're going to be famous in years to come, you're getting towards some sort of verisimilitude. And that's why, as Philip says, they're very alive, these characters. They're alive because they were real characters to a large degree. So that's the technique he's using. And, and that's why I think... They're very believable. The one thing I often think about Evelyn War is a huge variety of characters in his books. I cannot think of a single Evelyn War character in a single book that I wouldn't like to meet. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I think that, I... That, that can't be true. Unfortunately, I can't think of a single one. Can't think of a single one. <laughs> uh, the, the, Emperor, the Emperor Constantine. Can't wait to meet him. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, my technique as a, as a novelist, when I want to base a character on uh, an ordinary person, is to um, break into their house at dead of night, steal all their letters, and then go home and copy them out. I've never found a better way than that. <laughs> the fallacy that I think that people often have about basing characters on real people is that very often the thing that inspires the most vivid characters is just one tiny thing glimpsed almost in passing. You know, Henry James was very much known for this, of uh, meeting somebody for the first and last time at a dinner party, listening to them tell their story for half an hour and then going home and writing The Awkward Age. It's not, on the whole, people who you know well, and certainly not people that you see every day that make vivid characters. I doubt that Ward seen Brian Howard or Alistair Graham very much in the years before writing Brideshead Revisited. They had sort of amassed into a kind of quite clear and quite controllable bunch of characteristics, and that's what makes them so strong. Yes, I, I like the point you make about a very small thing that can bring alive a whole character, and that, again, I would point to as one of his absolute marks of genius in his writing, just taking a tiny, tiny inflection or something that actually other people could write a whole novel out of, and he'll put it in one paragraph. Springing to mind immediately is that scene, I don't know if you remember it, Philip, in, in The Loved One, in which um, Mr Joyboy brings his girlfriend, Amy Fiat Tajanos back to yes. back to have dinner with the mother, and the mother just talks to the parrot, and the parrot squawks. But it all happens in, it just happens in a paragraph, and you just think there is a life in that one paragraph, a whole tragedy in that short comic <laughs> <Yes>. paragraph. <laughs> the other character who I think is absolute genius is the um, princess 
Jenny Akbar in Handful of Dust. It's a terrible caricature, but it's done with such kind of concision and specificity and her rising to her rising overcome by the tragedy when she hears the terrible news in her own flat but there's nowhere to go except the bathroom so she goes to lock herself in the bathroom and they have to kind of finish the conversation through the bathroom door <laughs> it is uh, it is true it always reminds me of what flaubert said when um, somebody said to him what inspired madame bovary master and um, he said the most unexpected thing he said I thought of a woman in a dress the colour of a woodlouse. And that, I think, is the real novelist speaking. You know, what sets off the Diana Cooper figure in, in Scoop is the tiny black beetle of a car that she buzzes around in. It's always something kind of very small, very specific unmistakable. The one thing that everybody remembers from Brideshead Revisited, strangely enough, is the teddy bear called Aloysius. I wish that War had told us what happened to the teddy bear. I remember the first time I read Brideshead Revisited saying, but we, we, we don't know what, what happened to the t- teddy bear. Yes. He just sort of disappears. Do we know what happened to the tortoise whose shell was uh, uh, studded with diamonds? Yes. Yes, we do. It wanders off and is lost, uh, Cordelia tells us. I think, yeah. I think the tortoise is almost, well, more memorable, really, than Aloysius. <laughs> well, <laughs> the description well, of it well, loping across the carpet is just heaven. Well, the debate will continue over the tortoise versus the teddy bear for hundreds of years to come. <laughs> um, Philip Hencher, Alexander War, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it, if you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Try a month in print and online for free. And, for a limited time only, get a free wireless phone charger. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash charger to start today.